Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hey folks, welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. I am your co-host, Reza Aslan. And I am your main host, Rain Wilson. Nice to see you. Thanks for tuning in. Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you for letting me be the Robin to your Batman, by the way, all these years. I know you've got tights on down there. <laughs> I got I got really, really tidy, tidy around my my ball sack area. How's everything going, Rain? I feel like I haven't seen you in a while. What what what's going on? What's what are you what are you working well, on? Well, right you now? know, I've been traveling around the world with this happiness show. Mm-hmm. Has it made you any happier? No, it hasn't. <laughs> it sucks. Well, not yet. I've been to four countries already exploring happiness, and I've learned a ton, and it has not affected my daily life. <laughs> oh dear I get lord! It. I understand that. So frustrating. But I'm also, my head has just been in this book, uh, Soul Boom, which comes out in April. So just uh, really hankering down on that. And my head is in that. And I haven't had much... Uh, much space for anything else. Um, God, I you know remember how that what that was. You like. finished your book. You yeah, finished your book. I'm so, Hound, I'm so glad Hound of the done. Baskervilles. <laughs> the Baskervilles. That's right. No, it is not. No, it is. It What's is. What's it called about, again? Uh, it's called an American Martyr in Persia, and it's okay. about a kid named Howard Baskerville. But it has nothing to do with the hound. Although, who knows? Maybe he had a dog. I don't know. You, we're in different places. You're still finishing it up and I'm like getting ready for the, you know, this book tour and getting ready to yeah. go out into the world. You know, I'm in sell mode and you're still in create mode. I think yes. that's the difference. Yeah. You know, I'm in create and finish within the next six weeks mode um, <laughs> or else. Or else um, mode. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, that's, you gotta, you gotta sell some books. This I is a go tough sell. sell. Books, like, man. Oh, I gotta sell some Sociology history examination of Iranian turn of the century <laughs> shenanigans. That's, no, it is a, it is a thrilling, to... it is a thrilling action packed book about a young man who is transformed by his experience of the world and, and transforms a country. Doesn't he transform? Yeah. He gives his life. He gives his life to a cause. This is not never going to sell. You need to, you need a viral moment. You need, remember that big moment you had around your Jesus book where you were on Fox news and they're like, oh, why would you, a Muslim write about Jesus? Oh my God. How can I get Fox news you, to be mad at me? Uh, you that just, would be... uh, you dug in just so expertly with calm, just <laughs> dissected their argument and it went totally viral. Hundreds of millions of views. You need to go on Fox and get another viral moment. Well, listen, I gotta, uh, I'm not, I'm not saying no. Yes, I would. I will gladly. In fact, if there are any producers from Fox news 
uh, listening in uh, in this podcast, uh, I am totally available to come on your network and lambast any one of your anchors. Just pick one. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Steve Ducey. He seems like the biggest idiot of them all. But but any any one of them will do. But I will say, look, it's a double-edged sword, my friend going viral in that way, because obviously there's a lot of benefits to it. People hear about your ideas and your thoughts, and it starts all these conversations. But but very quickly what happens is that it takes on this life of its own, and it becomes, you know, very quickly no longer about you and about sort of what, you know, you did or what you said means about the world. And then everyone just kind of takes it in their own direction. And and as as positive it was for me, the the sort of handful of times that I've gone viral for one reason or another, there's a lot that goes wrong. There's a lot of mm. hatred and anger and and threats, which is why I didn't want you to tell everybody where I lived, but thanks for that. And you know, it it's it, it just it's a reminder that that good ideas and bad ideas yep. spread with the same sort of viral force. If anything, I would say bad ideas spread even more forcefully than than good ideas do. So the so the question becomes, how do you how do you spread a good idea? Like how mm. how if you have an, a, a a movement, something that's important to you, something that that really yeah. Because I was going to say even more than a than an idea, how do you spread uh, actions that are behind that idea? How do you how do you spread a social movement? How do you take that good idea and transform it into something that that moves the needle forward? Well, I've got a possible idea about how to learn to do that. How about from uh, our friend Ruha Benjamin? Ruha Benjamin. <laughs> Ruha is a professor at Princeton. La-di-da. Fancy. She's Fancy. got a, a, a master's and a PhD in sociology from Cal Berkeley. Born in India. I love her stories of her background that are in this book. Born in India, but then grew up in South Central LA. Part black, part Persian Indian. hey <laughs> and And has, uh, you know, teaches on a whole host of topics uh, about racism, structural racism, uh, about sort of black bodies, uh, social anatomy, uh, you know, things like that. She, her last book was on, was, was fascinating. It was on um, race and technology and kind of the racism that's inherent in uh, technological oh, yeah, progress. Yeah. 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 Won a ton of awards, uh, and it's just an all-around incredible thinker and speaker. But she's got this new book out called Viral Justice, How We Grow the World That We Want, that we're going to talk a lot about. But, you know, one of the reasons that we wanted to have her on this show was, you know, you and I have talked about this before. The world's on fire. It's really hard to kind of look around and, and realize so much is going wrong and, and you want to do something about it. The question is, How? How? Can we as individuals do something about it? How do you build a movement? Ruha Benjamin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know I've been trying to get you on the milkshake for two years, at least three years, something like that. I know, but I'm vegan. So, you know, I was like, this milkshake, yeah, this metaphysical, I, I don't know. You can Just use oat of- milk. We're fine with oat milk. <laughs> totally fine. I'm Um, not really vegan, just so you know. (laughs) So excited to talk to you about this masterpiece, Um, Viral Justice. And what a beautiful book, too. I love the cover. 
Like, it's such you. a pretty cover. Thank yeah. What? Who? What's the story of this artwork again? I think you told me, or I read something about. It. What's the story? Yeah. So the artist, he was commissioned by the press, by Princeton University Press, and so it went through different iterations. But we really just wanted to. Um, inspire this idea of growth and of individuals taking part in seeding a new world. And so we, we love that. It's so pretty. People don't realize that like authors have almost no say no in say. their covers exactly. at all. Yeah, you just luck out. Like, you just, exactly. You, like you just it. like, it's just luck, you know? Well, speaking of design elements, <laughs> I was looking through your book this morning and preparation and because both Reza and I have book. Reza's got a book coming out in October. I've got one coming out in April. All these design decisions. You please just tell us about the Siamese crocodiles. <laughs> right, and so it's the symbol that I use instead of an asterisk, instead of just a space, um, as a provocation, a, a kind of chorus throughout the book of these Siamese crocodiles that share a stomach and yet fight over food, and so it's. It's, you know, it grows out of this West African proverb that is speaking to both our interconnectedness as humans and as kind of life on the planet, even beyond humans, but also our foolishness huh. that we continue to fight. We have the scarcity mindset and yet we're interconnected. We share a stomach. And so it's just kind of like that refrain throughout the book that um, that speaks to me. I love that your 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 vision, your mission with this story is can be boiled down even in the asterisks that you use <laughs> in between chapters and headings. It's uh, it's just fantastic. But I spoke about you a little bit before we got started. What an incredible and dynamic, powerful speaker you are. The way you make kind of social justice activism funny, accessible, <laughs> and also just a continuous gut punch. But what brought you? To this book, what led to the writing of it? And I, you know, read a little bit about how connected this book is to COVID, to the political unrest of the last couple of years, to kind of a lot of the race movements that happened post George Floyd and and many other victims of uh, racism during this time. But why this book now, and what led you to it? Yeah, it, it is a book of the moment. It's what we could call it a pandemic book. Um, it really comes down to trying to write something that I needed at the time, at the time. And so, you know, in some ways it was like my form of therapy in terms of digesting and processing all mm -hmm. of the headlines and all of the currents and crises that we were all experiencing over the last few years. And yet it has this kind of longer genealogy too, because I'm really drawing on a lot of, a lot of life experiences, things with my family that I've never really thought like deeply about and processed and connected to my work. And so it was this opportunity to kind of speak to the moment, but also zoom out and think about what all of these experiences, how they're connected and how they connect to a larger story, not just my story, but our story as a humanity. And so, you know, the original title was Viral Racism <laughs> because yeah. I was thinking about the pandemic and policing. And I remembered what a mentor of mine once said was that we spend so much time naming and conceptualizing what's ailing us, the things that we don't want, and we don't carve out enough intellectual space naming and talking about the world we do want. And so that sort of echoed in my head and was part of my shift from not only the title Viral Racism to Viral Justice, but also giving enough space in the text 
for all of the examples um, of people building a world in the small print, in nitty gritty ways that often don't get the attention. So in a lot of ways, this is also a love letter to people who've been doing the work, the kind of invisible labor that doesn't often get a big headline or hashtag or fancy award or grant or what have you. I have so much, so many uh, positive things to say about the book. Um, I could go on and on. I don't want to do that right now, but I want to say that I, I really responded to that shift that you made, you know, the world that we do want, you know, it's, it's interesting as um, I want to talk a little bit more about my privilege later on, but in reading some, you know, books over the last couple of years around race and racism, it's always like, oh, you think you understand racism? Wait a second. You have no idea. There's this whole other other layer of the onion you hadn't even thought about. And you have done that in the past in some of your writings about race and technology and, you know, some really mind-blowing uh, ideas that would never come to my mind. So this whole idea that you're focusing on almost micro solutions is just fantastic. In the introduction, we're both members of the Baha'i faith. And in the introduction, you talk about the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah's vision of justice. And Baha'u'llah says, of course, the best beloved of all things is justice. Turn not away therefrom if thou desirest me or if thou desirest God. How did this spiritual vision of justice influence the roots of this work? In, in a lot of ways, it, um, it balanced out my training. So this focus in that quotation that's in the book that you just um, uh, excerpted there is in, inviting us to look inward, to think about what justice means for us internally, a kind of reflective practice, seeing with our own eyes and not through the eyes of others, knowing with our own knowledge and not the knowledge of our neighbors. So it's encouraging a kind of internal exploration that balances out, I, I won't say a contrast, but balances out my training as a sociologist, which is trying to focus on these larger processes that are often invisible that shape people's lives. So we have all of this language, right? Structural racism, institutional inequity, um, you know, huge processes that are important to shine a light on because many people only think about things at an individual level. But as I explained in the book, I kind of went to the other extreme, that kind of indoctrination of my training and discounted the role of individuals discounted the role that we each play in terms of individual volition, in terms of social change. And so these two things are really complementary because at the end of the day, you know, people make up institutions, you know, human beings make up societies, we create cult cultures, you know, these aren't things that operate outside of us. And so I think in many ways, our language can be limiting. Like even when we talk about, is it macro or micro? Like that's a kind of false choice. I think we have to develop a new vocabulary that uh, recognizes the, the idea of our interdependence, not even just other human beings, but ecological interdependence, like human beings right now in relation to the planet. And so I would say, you know, the, the choice that we are often presented, you either look at laws and policies or you look at individual action and volition, that's a kind of false choice. Um, mm -hmm. We have to do both and. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Uh, folks, I may look like an outrageously handsome and wildly successful podcast host. All true, all and true. And actor and writer. 
but I still got problems. No. You know, I got 99 problems and a podcast ain't one of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I use therapy to help me through my problems on a weekly and on a monthly basis. It helps me focus on the right things and stay out of behavior patterns that can be, well, negative, destructive, and set me back. So it can be really hard to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge, but you learn how to find your own solutions. And then when you do that, there really is no better feeling. And a therapist, my therapist, is he helps me learn how to be a better problem solver and helps me learn how to accomplish my goals, no matter how big or how small. So BetterHelp Online Therapy, it's got so many options. You can do video therapy, you can do phone therapy, you can just even do chat therapy so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's way more affordable than in-person therapy. You can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash milkshake. That's betterhelp.com slash milkshake. And listen, folks, you got to take care of yourself. I mean, you can't just keep pretending that you can handle it all on your own. You need help. Mm. Just admit it. Call BetterHelp. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You said that the book was uh, originally titled Viral Racism, and now, of course, it's called Viral Justice. But this word, this this idea of a thing that's viral is a word that you reference a lot in the book. You talk about kind of things that we can learn from viruses and the spread of viruses. W- what is What does the word actually mean to you and how is it applied yeah. when it comes to something like justice? Yeah, to me, I'm, th- I'm using virus virality as a lens to train our attention to the microscopic, to things that are often um, seemingly small. And when we do that and we think specifically about the coronavirus, we realize, oh, this thing that we can't see that is small can bring the planet to its knees, (laughs) can turn things upside down. And so if something microscopic can do that in the negative sense, how can we Think about life-affirming processes, things that are sustaining, things we want more of, not just the things we're trying to eradicate. And so it's a kind of lens to train our attention, to respect, to, to create more of those things that, again, seemingly small but powerful actions, habits, dispositions, ways of thinking and being in the world that can have exponential effects in ways that can be 
positive ways that we can actually engender life, not not eradicate it. I don't know why, but it's easier for me to think about how something negative can um, spread like a virus because fear, xenophobia, you know, these are bigotry. These are almost evolutionary impulses. And so they can be turned on very easily. And so, and they can spread very easily. I mean, all you have to do is watch any, any episode of The Twilight Zone and, and you, see, you see what I'm talking about. Uh, there's always that one, you know, moment in which like fear starts to spread like a virus or, or whatever. But what needs to happen for something positive to spread in that same way, you know, because I just it just feels so much more difficult, right, to get people to have a virality when it comes to something good and positive and meaningful, something that affects good, meaningful change. Totally. And I think, you know, where I start with that is to think about what what has inspired me in the past. That's why so much of the book is also kind of excavating those experiences that, you know, um, had, a you know, were generative for me that inspired me. And so when we start to pay attention to what gets us going, what, what we are paying attention to, we see that sometimes it can be very small fleeting words that someone says, a look that you get, um, a feeling that's engendered in it through an interaction. And so part of it is that what looms large in our head is often the negative, the fear, you know, the, the things that bring us to our knees. But once we begin to kind of like, you know, uh, go over those pathways in our own mind and heart about what it has been encouraging to us, what has kept us going, what has made us more courageous what has made us love, what has made us forgive, like all of those things, then the more that we sort of go on those pathways, we grow that potential. And so part of this book is an invitation for us, again, to take charge of our own minds <laughs> and mm-hmm. not be, you know, not have our attention um, directed by all of the different forms of media and experiences that, that thrive on us being fearful and hateful, et cetera. And so I definitely agree with you that it things it often do seem to loom large um, that are destructive, but I don't think that's inevitable. I think mm-hmm. that we can control our own attention, our own minds, and then that therefore, like I meant, I quote my grandma in the book, we need to water what we want to grow. You know, we need to actually invest in that. So this book is just chock-a-block. Have you counted the number of examples that you give in this book of viral justice? Because it's just, just when you think you've read like the 87th, then it's 89th and it's 174. It's incredible the number of examples that you give. And for our listeners, can you give us some of your favorite examples? I mean, there's, there's so many, there's, it's as from, from like Uber drivers sharing the fact that the uh, rides are getting more expensive and they're actually getting paid the same or less. Just sharing yeah. that on a Facebook group, it, you know, viral justice can start as small as that. It can certainly start with someone just seeing a need and beginning a nonprofit or a community uh, activation uh, around some injustice that they see on a, on a local scale. But I'd love to hear after writing 189 examples of viral justice, what are what are two or three or four of the ones that really resonate the most 
with you that you think our uh, listeners would really uh, get off on. And and what can we learn from them? I think that's the other thing too. Like, what can the rest of us learn? Yeah, there again, there's so many examples. It's like choosing which baby I love more. Um, so <laughs> let's see. I do. I love a lot the examples in which everyday people take almost take the tools that are being used against them and wield it in the other direction. You mentioned like Uber drivers or like, you know, people whose work is being governed by algorithms who then decide, you know what, um, we can figure out our own coding and programming and flip the script and look at the way that, you know, um, the people who are governing our work are mistreating us. So I love those examples of, um, taking the same tools and using it to their own ends, to more liberatory ends against oppressive structures, whether it's in the context of Amazon, which mm -hmm. comes up a lot, or in other sort of gig economy work. Um, I, I think, you know, what what really hits home, though, is a lot of the examples that are people and organizations in my own life that don't even know they're in the book yet, <laughs> that are going to find out in a month and a half, like, whoa, I didn't even know that that hit you like that, you know? And I think part of, you know, this being a love letter is to say that all of these ways that people have touched me and made a way for my family and enveloped me in community that I never perhaps um, publicly acknowledged, like this is also my love letter for those individuals and those groups. And so I kind of have a special, a special <laughs> place for that. I guess the last sort of category of example, though, are our movements and collectives that are completely changing the terms of engagement in terms of what they're seeking in the world. And so in the chapter called Hunted, which has to do with police violence and was the hardest to write in terms of my own, mm. you know, personal, um, my family's experience with um, policing and incarceration, um, where there are organizations that are saying, we're not just trying to make this system less harmful. <laughs> We're not trying to just reduce the number of people beaten or caged and make things a little more tolerable. They're completely questioning why does this thing exist and what can we create other than this? Mm. And so those efforts to mm. essentially pull the rug out and say, we refuse the choice between um, harmful and most harmful. <laughs> mm, yeah. You know what I mean? And say, forget that. We're going to put on the table a third choice, a fourth choice, a fifth alternative, and not just dream about it, not just kind of like write Twitter posts about it. We're actually going to start creating the relationships in our own backyard that have mm. to do with engendering true safety, true well-being and how we treat one another. We're not waiting for this pie in the sky to float down. We're going to start living the world that we want in the future right now. And so it, I feel like that category of examples that run throughout the book um, really get my blood going. They're, for me, the most um, galvanizing because they question everything, but don't stay at the level of questioning. They begin to actually work in the dirt to try to create that world. That's great. And we want to get into that more and how people do that and how listeners can do that and how this viral justice book can virally spawn a viral justice movement. Because I agree with you, like one of the things I just hate about social media and I try and stay off of it as much as possible and took it off my phone is, you know, a, you tweet an injustice 
and it gets retweeted and there's protests and screams. Look, look there was an injustice the other day. There was police beating up a guy right. who happened to be, I think he was white, but they were just like yeah, pounding the shit out mm -hmm. of this guy on the sidewalk for no reason whatsoever. They could have just put handcuffs on him. It was just preposterous, which shows, you know, how grotesquely violent our law enforcement system perceives yeah. itself as something that needs to subjugate, you know, the, the communities it's supposed to serve. But we placate ourselves with like, oh, I retweeted this and I said, look how awful this is. And then you feel done. You're a keyboard warrior and you just feel, you feel finished when you're exactly right. There are systems in place that are essentially corrupt and need to be rethought from the ground up. And one of the, I think, unintended consequences of um, inundating ourselves with those kind of images and sort of letting those go viral um, is that it inures us. Our tolerance for seeing mm. and expecting that, whether we want to or not, is also increasing. Like, give it a few years and that video is not going to seem as outrageous because we will have seen 200 oh, since. Sure, absolutely. And so, and so, you know, part of it is, what do we want our media, you know, diet to consist of? And we need, for some people who are oblivious or who are, you know, stubborn, stubbornly ignorant about these things, perhaps it does them some good to witness, bear witness to the harms that are, are there. But for many people who are living it, we don't need to see it. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And, and, and so the question is, what, what are we actually working towards that can not just reduce, but transform that status quo. Mm -hmm. One of the topics you go into a lot in the book is healthcare and especially birth and birthing of black women, black women community, something resin I don't know anything about, but I'll give you a little <laughs> glimpse. So I'm, I'm literally the but most privileged Something person we're more than happy to talk about. Yes, I mean, I'm gonna clearly. mansplain exactly how but, this works. Uh, so for me, you know, I'm the most privileged guy on the planet. I'm tall, white, middle-aged, wealthy, TV celebrity. I mean, I check every single box. And I had just a little, just a little taste, just a little soupçon, a little aperitif of this when my wife had, uh, had to get an emergency C-section. And instead of going down to St. Joseph's Medical Center in Santa Monica, which is glisten a glistening mm -hmm. medical center. We were whisked away at three in the morning and she almost died and my son almost died because she was given just the worst possible care and on a gurney in a hallway as she's bleeding from her vagina and nurses are doing like Excel spreadsheets on their computers. And literally at one point the nurse goes, I can't find the heartbeat. Just says it like that. Like, here, you take the paddles. You know where the baby is. Find You can find the heartbeat. Oh to, to me. To me. Just absurd. Anyways, I could go on and on. But <laughs> got a little bit of a taste of a, a little a tiniest whiff of the injustices of the, uh, of the healthcare system. You um, talk a lot about your own story about being black and pregnant while at Spelman. You talk about so many examples of, of, of black women giving birth, healthcare inequities, doulas, so, and the support communities that have arisen around this um, and the systemic injustices around the healthcare system as affects black women and birthing. Can you give us the gist of, of what you're talking about there? Yes, I can. And so 
first of all, I I did, never knew that about um, what you all had gone through, and it's it's terrible. And whether you you consider it a just a, a small you know dimension of this larger problem of reproductive care for any given family, it is traumatizing. <laughs> and so I just mm-hmm. want to acknowledge that you know you mm-hmm. kind of live with that that trauma of um, being neglected and being discounted and almost mm. dying. Um, mm. So for me, you know what, and this is one of those places in the book where um, I was completely spared that experience because of, um, I, and what I, you know, what I attributed to is that I was enveloped by a completely different model of um, pregnancy and childbirth that has a long tradition in the South that is led by black midwives, where in the state of Georgia, even today, um, community-based midwives who are not licensed, nurse, uh, nurse, uh, licensed as nurses, it's outlawed. It's not oh, uh, within the law to practice. So mm. my birth at home with a black midwife was, you know, under the radar, so to speak. Usually, they don't get harassed unless something bad happens or not sued unless something bad happens. But it's very rare, you know, for, for anything, you know, in fact, the, the kind of risk profile of people who are use black midwives, our, our outcomes, our birth outcomes are so much better than our counterparts in hospitals. And it's not, you know, there's a lot of reasons and I explain, um, but the bigger take home there, again, I had a wonderful experience with black midwife and her apprentice um, in my home. But what I really want to offer in that chapter is this approach to childbirth, I think is a model for how we should approach healthcare more broadly and accompaniment in many other areas of life, you know? So the kind of accompaniment and the art of encouragement the art of support and holding mm. space for people when they're most vulnerable. I think that applies not just in the context of childbirth. It applies in so many critical junctures in our lives. And so I want to essentially say Black midwives are our role model for how to um, how to seed a different world. And they're doing it like one birth at a time. Mm. And um, again, it's not simply about having fewer C-sections or having slight, a slightly better rate, like this kind of incremental change. Because even when you isolate um, white women <laughs> um, in terms of their well-being in the U.S., the outcomes are worse than a long list of other countries. Yeah. Not And not just industrialized countries, in countries that have far fewer resources. So if you just treat white women as a country their outcomes are really poor, <laughs> even though we spend more than any other country on a high tech, um, you know, healthcare and medicine. So that itself should be a, 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 a horn for us to wake up and think it's not just about getting the, like if black women were having the same outcomes as white women, like having racial equity, that would still be bad. <laughs> mm. You know mm. what I mean? So mm. it's not simply racial equity, but it's social transformation. Um, because I don't, like King said, I don't want to be integrated into a burning house. And I think <laughs> that applies in the context of reproductive care as much as anything else. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. You know, whether it is about healthcare, or reproductive care, uh, racism, or income equality, or climate, you know, it just sometimes feels like these issues are so huge and so overwhelming that and especially when you look at them you know on a global stage they just seem unfixable it's it's very hard not to look at some of these systemic problems and to feel discouraged and to throw your hands up and to just be like you know what there's nothing i can do about it there's no there's you know there's no changing the world uh, and so I've given up. And I think the thing that's so encouraging and inspiring about your book and so much a part of sort of the, the larger topic that we want to talk about today, which is, you know, how to start a movement, is that you really do talk about tackling these issues in sort of smaller ways, like starting, you know, with the individual and with the community and to not get overwhelmed by the the the, just the bigness of these problems. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that process actually looks like? You know, and we can talk about racism. We can talk about income inequality if you want. Um, that those are the two things that you mostly deal with in, in the book. But really, uh, any problem. You know, uh, how how does an individual think to themselves? Okay, I'm going to start small. I'm going to start with myself. I'm going to start with my community. I'm going to start with my city, whatever the case may be. And and then in a viral way, make this thing, you know, global enough to actually make a difference in the world. Absolutely. That might be too so, big of a question, but no, it's a good, it's a like, it's a million dollar question, <laughs> but I feel like as a, as a, you know, the first things is that for anyone listening who's really in that in that space of it feeling really overwhelming, you know, my my own self talk <laughs> um, it involves quoting to myself the words of the late great Jimmy Baldwin, who said, "I you know I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter." Mm. And so for me, that says that there's already a privilege in throwing our hands up, in saying, oh, I can't, you know, there's too much. Because if you're in in the trenches, if these forces are affecting your ability to feed yourself or your family or to educate yourself or to get life-saving treatment or to avoid the deadly force of the police or to get a job, like these fundamental goods that people need to thrive, then you 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 almost don't have the luxury to be like f it <laughs> you know yeah. it's too big because what's too big to one person who's who has the luxury to sit back and kind of you know take it all in is you trying to grind day in and day out and so that's why i think in the aftermath of the pandemic when we saw the proliferation of all of these mutual aid groups on the one hand 
you know, it brought people into the process of mutual aid who before, you know, didn't really have to rely on their neighbors, didn't really have to think about what was lacking in their neighborhood. And so it was a moment of more people getting in the trenches. And so what does that look like when we're not in crisis mode? You know, I use this term in throughout the book um, about plotting, like we're plotting a different world. And I'm thinking about that at, at different levels. I'm thinking about, you know, I was a drama major when I first started college. And so I'm I didn't thinking, know that about you. Yes, I will geek oh. out. We'll geek out. So before, oh and to me, there's so much synergy between drama and sociology, and totally. sociology rips off theater all the time in our language when we talk about you know um, social narratives and social roles and the front stage and the backstage. Like we're always ripping off theater, but the fact of the matter is, like when we think about these narratives, these plots like these narrative plots that we've inherited, these scripts that we follow. A first step in world building and movement building is questioning these inherited plots, mm -hmm. questioning these roles we've been assigned. You know, in fact, tearing up the scripts <laughs> um, and thinking about how do we become protagonists in a different kind of process right? Rather than simply abiding by these scripts we've inherited. So that's one idea of plotting, right? The other that I'm thinking about is literally like the idea of getting our hands dirty in our own backyards, plot, like figuring out what the plot is in terms of, um, you know, I, I use a lot of examples of gardening in the book. In LA, there's someone called the gangster gardener who has taken the areas on the sidewalks in front of their yards and created these edible gardens, right? And so how we use that as a metaphor, and I want readers to think about what their plot is, right? And really to, I want us to respect all of the different ways that people can get involved, right? I, the last line of the book is, that we have to respect the loud and ferocious world builders as much as the quiet and studious ones, mm. that we all have a role to play. And for me, it makes perfect sense because we got here to the, this, this crossroads of multiple crises through many different angles, top down policies and laws, sideways cultural norms, everyday bottom up actions, like the oppressive status quo was created through all of these pathways, <laughs> which means all of these pathways are ways for people to get involved. And so I want I want listeners to think about what gets their blood boil, boiling, what keeps you mm. up at night, what pisses mm. you off. Like what pisses me off is such a motivator and a fuel. Like, you know, my, and my hands will be banging on the keys of the keyboard because I'll be so angry about something. That's a good sign, you know, yeah. to think about what pisses mm. you off. And then crucially, crucially, to look around and look at who is already working on that front rather than trying to be a, a lone savior or hero or create a new app for this or a new business venture that deals with whatever problem you've discovered, you know, get getting out of that entrepreneurial mindset and, and getting into a collaborative posture and thinking about how you can put your skills and energy to the service of organizations that have probably been working on that front for longer than you've been alive. Um, and so to me, it's crucial to tap into what you're passionate about, but not to be ruled by passion, to actually learn from the organizations, the communities, the movements around you and work in solidarity with them. I love that. That's, that's so important. Um, and I think that's, 
I was talking to a friend who came from Australia, who moved here from Australia recently. And in Australia, he was talking about like, it has a lot of collectivism. The Americans have such an entrepreneurial bent on everything. Like everything is about the individual and the sanctity of the individual and the, the power of the individual. And so I guess really what we're asking when we're talking about starting a viral justice movement is we're talking about the individual working in conjunction and in cooperation and in collectivism uh, for that change. And we have to kind of set aside our American kind of like gung-ho cowboy way of doing things. I'm thinking about, however, someone I got to know a little bit was Greta Thunberg. And just that's, and that's when I share, uh, you know, around this topic with young people at college campuses, I always talk about Greta because it's so doable. It's like, here's a girl on the spectrum. She read an article about climate change. She's like, why is no one doing wait a minute, that we're killing the earth? No one's sitting around and just having coffee and going about their lives. And every Friday, she just made a, a dumb little sign and sat out there and then eventually got interviewed. And then the interview spread and then it really went viral. And she has hundreds of millions of followers. And you know, have we fixed climate change? No, but has she made a dent? Has she moved the needle, especially with young people? Absolutely. And I love that you quote uh, an, an activist from um, Philadelphia named Stephanie Keene. And when people ask Stephanie Keene, what should we do, especially privileged folks, like what should we do to help? And she says, do what you're good at. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so it's this, you know, this marriage of passion and skill. And, you know, she talks about if you like to cook, you know, she says revolutionaries need to eat. If you're good at data, we need the nerds. You know, if you're in the arts, like every movement has to be revitalized through music, through song and storytelling. Like that's not icing an extra on the cake. It's the heartbeat of <laughs> any movement worth its salt. And so when we begin to actually expand um, our imagination of what it will take, then you it, it engenders a deep respect of what everyone brings to the table, you know, like you can't do it without the data nerds or the, you know, the airy, you know, like musicians or the, you know, like not everyone needs to be good at the same thing. Keen says like that, that's not what makes a movement. And so we have mm -hmm. to carve out space for us to, you know, not just bring our different capacities and skills, but to really respect what people are bringing to the table. And also, to leave room for conflict and consultation and debate, you know, it's not all, you know, um, kumbaya, but I think what essentially through our kind of, again, a media saturation of a particular poster child of activism, a particular kind of image of what, a, you know, a, a, a advocate looks like or sounds like, dresses like, you know, what lingo they use, you know, what buzzwords it narrows the scope and it actually becomes the veneer of something rather than, you know, the, the substance of what we need to work on. You know, one thing that's kind of difficult when it comes to building movements is you have to create some kind of shared identity uh, amongst a diverse group of individuals, right? I was thinking about this um, interview that, Andrew Yang, who anybody who follows me on social media knows I am not a fan of. On the contrary, 
I, I just think he is an unserious joke. But you know, he's got this he's got this party now called the Forward Party. And it's supposed to be neither right nor left. It's all of us. And our ideas are neither liberal nor conservative. They're forward. And so he did this interview that kind of went a little bit viral in which an anchor asked him, okay, but like you have to have positions, right? Like, so for instance, what is your party's position on abortion? And he's like, you know, we don't have a left position or a right position. We have a forward position. And the anchor does not have the ability to say, what the fuck are you talking about, asshole? Like I do. But it occurred to me that, you know, from that interview, one of the most difficult problems with creating social movements, is, and even those, you know, focused on things like justice or income equality, is that on the one hand, your strength comes from drawing people from all over the place, right? The whole political spectrum, different races, different, uh, you know, social classes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, you have to figure out a way to get everybody to kind of accept a singular idea, a singular narrative, a singular movement, you know, something something that that you can all just kind of use as a as a means of identity. Could you talk a little bit about how how do we create something that is uh, meaningful and uh, and has the ability to draw a large audience, is diverse, but still at the same time is uncompromising in the the values that it is putting forth. I think that distinction is important, that the kind of diversity of dispositions and skills and capacities I referred to earlier has more to do with the how of how we do things, not the what, mm. the kind of uncompromising what. What are the principles on which any movement is built? And I think one place to start is really thinking about what tradition are we building on? When we are working to foster any kind of social change or movement, we're not starting from scratch. We're not, you know, again, it's not this entrepreneurial mindset, always trying to be original. We're thinking about what, whose shoulders do we stand on? What tradition mm. are we building on? And so if we're talking about the long freedom struggle in this, in this country, then there are a set of principles around justice um, around equity that are uncompromising. And there are also pragmatic ideas about how we do that, right? In terms of what kind of economic system, what kind of political system, um, educational system do we need? And so I think we need to distinguish between um, really having open arms in terms of how we work together and what we bring to the table with understanding that there's a set of, of, of principles around um, you know, the, the distribution of goods and resources and respect that allows everyone to live a flourishing life. And not all economic systems will get us there. Not all political systems will get us there to ensure that everyone has what they need to live a flourishing life. And so I think it's a something also that requires ongoing sort of calibration. Like we don't just decide at one point in time, these are, these are the principles we stand for. This is how we get there. We have to also constantly be checking if we're adhering to those noble principles and those, and those ideas. And so it's a kind of ongoing um, exercise in humility and self-reflection that has to happen at a collective level as well. Ruha, this uh, book is, is fantastic. And um, I really thank you too for sharing your personal story so much throughout it. I was very 
moved by those anecdotes and a lot of the suffering that you've undergone personally uh, along this path. Um, and in a book published by Princeton University Press, that's a pretty rare thing to kind of <laughs> have some personal, uh, this is peer reviewed, I understand probably, yeah. <laughs> uh, but to have stories of your, of your family life, working life, your growing up life, your struggles uh, is super important. And it's an exciting book. And I just wish you the very best in Thanks. promoting it, launching it. And uh, may it launch another 10,000 uh, instances you. of viral justice <laughs> around the globe. Thank, thank you, you so much me. for, yes, thanks for joining thank us. You, thank thanks, you for Reza. joining us on the Metaphysical Oat Milkshake. <laughs> thanks, Reza. Thanks, Rain. <laughs> so, wow, um, so much to think about. Yeah. Uh, viral movements. What a speaker. I want to see her speak live. She seems. Oh, she's dynamic. She's really hard hitting and dynamic and just um, all kinds of stories and examples. Uh, not theoretical, you know, really just down, down in the dirt mm -hmm. of social Really change. great advice. But, yeah, great advice about how, um, to, how to start movements. And, and uh, so well, let me ask you this. What, hmm. you know, movements are important. Um, we, we, there's a lot that needs changing in the world. It can be overwhelming, like you mm -hmm. said earlier on. Um, what social movement would you would you start? I mean, if you had an opportunity, Reza, like in your life right wow. now, and you That's were able to question. kind of yeah. start a little virus in your neighborhood of, mm, mm. you know, Highland Park, neighborhood of, of L.A., Five four five four. Please don't tell Mulhaney people where place. I live. I'm, like, okay. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. people who hate me already. Uh, but this is a fascinating question. If I could start a movement that would start small, individual, and then have the the virality to like it, it take over the globe and to really change things for the good, I guess, uh, yeah, I would have a, a a movement about how to use proper grammar. I think that's that's what I would. That's a that's a big global problem. You know, if you if you think about it in a global sense, it becomes uh, a, a little too heavy, too much, uh, unfixable. But if I start going around annoying the people in my community about the proper difference between your and your, or when to use that and when to use which, then I think I, I could then use that to create a, a global movement dedicated to proper grammar. Does that... Sound about. You sound like one of those Twitter grammar police <laughs> that's always correcting the your and your, you are and your thing. What about you? What about you? Certainly nothing nearly as important or, or okay. I'm going to go. I'm going to go a step above uh, uh, of grammar. I mean that that is crucial. I think good grammar is is one of the most important um, uh, thingies topics that we could we can focus on. One of the greatest needs of humanity moving forward. But I guess. For me, uh, similarly, I always think this when I'm driving. I'm always thinking like, if if you if there's a big long line of cars on the 101 merging into the 405 into LA, and you don't wait in that line, and you go in the left lane and you kind of cut around, mm -hmm. and then you duck in at the last minute, so you're you're cutting in line just you're like you asshole, would cut in line yeah. at a movie theater. Mm -hmm. If if that is still happening. How are we ever going to affect true social change? Because yeah. you're putting yourself up ahead of the collective. So I believe that 
Social transformation begins on the freeways. It begins on the highways. It begins at the stop signs. It's a good one. It begins at the yeah. red lights and it, at the yield signs where we all need to drive with great compassion and we need to drive as if the golden rule is <laughs> is is powering our our engine. Also, don't pass on the fucking right lane. Don't pass on the right lane. Don't do it. An entire an entire movement dedicated to not passing on the right lane. I think that's that's that has the potential for global transformation. I really do. Yeah. Uh, what about you, dear listener? Uh, do you have an idea for a movement? It could be a small movement, global movement. Let us know. You can find us on social media at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson, and on Twitter at Meta Milk Podcast. We're on Instagram at Metaphysical Milkshake. Let us know what your social movement would be. And and uh, and if you have any sort of big life questions too, we'd love to hear those. Actually, here's something cool. We are giving away five copies of Ruha's book, Viral Justice. So it's great because it'll give you a ton of ideas about how to actually affect global change. Um, all you got to do, it's very easy. You got to write a review for Metaphysical Milkshake on Apple Podcasts doesn't have to be a positive review, but if it's a negative review, we might accidentally lose your email. But all you got to do yeah. is, is uh, email a screenshot of it to metaphysical at castmedia. That's cast with a K. Media.com, metaphysical at castmedia.com. First five people who do it will get a copy of the book. Please, no P.O. boxes and please only uh, U.S. residents because we just can't can't afford to send it to Peru. We just can't. We just can't do it. We don't have the budget. Uh, you don't know. You don't know how little money podcasts make, my friend. Like, uh, you can also subscribe to Metaphysical Milkshake on our YouTube channel and watch us having these scintillating conversations. Watch full episodes each week. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much for tuning in, Milkshakers. We love you. See you next week. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Paris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. Original music by Jeff Tang. I'm always, I, I'm always thinking about that, but I, I don't actually write it. I'm always thinking to myself, like, you mean your? <laughs> it's so rife with judgment. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.